This morning we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12 and we're going to go Exodus chapter 12 verses 29 through 42. A journey of deliverance is our, is our main theme for the book of Exodus and sort of the beginning or the, the not the beginning because we've known it's gone through the plagues and all of that, but the work of deliverance is going to start like right now uh, in our text and it's going to come to fruition. And uh, we're going to see some things about this from a sort of a secondary view again because we talked about a lot of the aspects of the 10th plague and, and um, the deliverance of the Lord already when there was sort of a introduction to the 10th plague earlier in Exodus. And so we're going to look uh, at a journey of deliverance, a night of watching. Um, the Passover often is called a night or, or a night of watching, or they're told to watch and look, uh, because this is not only is this what the Lord did for the people of Israel; He was watching, He was watching over them. But this is what they were taught to do. They were told to do. Uh, they were told to watch and be ready and prepare, and and hear when the Lord told them to move. Hear when the Lord told them to go on. Uh, so for the last few weeks, we've been discussing different parts of this Passover. From the first part of Exodus 12, where we discussed some important truths that the Passover reveals to us, to last week where we discussed how the Passover is a memorial of the wonderful works of God, and how we would be wise if we had and acknowledged similar memorials, similar traditions in our own life. Uh, it helps us to remember. It helps us to place value on things or to restore uh, if God does it and he sets it as a tradition, it already has value, but to find that value in our own lives. So we would be wise to, to hold similar memorials in our lives. And one of those that we discussed is corporate worship. That's just one easy one. It's uh, being a part of corporate worship, being a part of the gathering of the believers. The assembly of believers is one of the memorials that God has set so that when we get together, we can remind each other, not only by salvation in our own lives, but by what he says through the scriptures, the goodness of the goodness of God. And so we hold to these memorials. So this week we're going to look at another aspect of the Passover, and that is the actual 10th plague and the beginning of the exit from Egypt. One of the things that we have seen with absolute certainty from the Passover, from the plagues, from um, all of, from one to the end, and then we're going to see all throughout the book of Exodus, is the sovereignty and the power and the might of God. God's ability to rescue. God's ability to work out His plan and work out His will. God's ability to be stronger than the gods of Egypt. Not only that, but to be a judge of the gods of Egypt. That they would be put on the scale against the Lord, and they would be found wanting. They would be found weightless. The Lord tips the scales as far as power goes, and he is, um, he is a God worthy to be feared. He is a God worthy to be trusted. He is a God worthy to be sought after, and he is a God worthy to be watched. He is a God worthy to be recognized. And I think something that we need to see, and we're going to talk about that specifically today, uh, as we look at this journey of deliverance again, as we look at a night of watching, specifically we need to look at how 
if or how we have attentiveness to the plans of God and how our attentiveness, our watching of the plans of God are key, are a key aspect or is a key aspect of the rescue of God for us and for others. We're going to read Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be in 29 and we're going to go through 42 today. At midnight the Lord struck down all, it goes right back into it, but remember there's a lot of introduction here. It goes right back into the 10th plague, but there's a lot of introduction so we know what's happening. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captives who, who, the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. There will be, hopefully it won't be as distracting as last week, but there will be a few side sermon ideas because there are a ton of sermons in here. Remember, there is one true meaning of the text, right? There's one true meaning. There's not uh, Drew's meaning and Bryce's meaning. There's one true meaning, and then there's a bunch of application points, maybe hundreds of application points that we could take from one text. And one of these things is this, that the Lord is not a respecter of persons. The Lord is not a respecter of persons. We're not going to preach on this today, but you need to recognize that. You need to know that. The Lord struck down, uh, he struck down one in the palace, and he struck down one in the prison. He is not a respecter of persons. If we lead that to its logical conclusion, what we find is this, that if he is not a respecter of persons in who he judges, that the Lord is, uh, is not a respecter of persons as it comes to your ability to work or do good or, or show him or add up favor or whatever it may be. And so what we find is, is that if he's willing to judge you for your unrighteous deeds, um, regardless of who you are, then he's willing to save you in spite of your righteous or what your so-called righteous deeds. The Bible says that our righteousness is, is like filthy rags. And what that simply means is, is that the Lord does not look upon you and expect for you to be, to be uh, who he initially created us to be. He understands the fallenness of sin. He understands the fallenness because of sin. And he saves us anyway from the palace to the prison. The, the rich man and the pauper. The person who is rich in seemingly spiritual works and the person who is poor in seeming works. And this is, a, this is a message, it's a side sermon, but it's a message that we need to get in the city of Horn Lake. Because we, have, we can't be afraid to minister to people who are unlike us, who don't look like us, who don't have a history like us. We have to be willing to get dirty with people who have a sin history that's much different than our own sin history. We have to be willing to sort of empathize and put ourselves into the position of people who are unlike us, who don't look like us, and probably never will. The goal of Vintage Church is not to make Horn Lake look like vintage. It's to make vintage look like Horn Lake, and that's important. Do you understand what I mean? Do you understand the distinction? I'm not saying that we don't grow in sanctification. But I'm saying that eventually, man, we're going to be filled with the type of people that makes up more of Horn Lake as opposed to makes up more of a past church that you came from. You understand what I'm saying? Side sermon. Side sermon done. Sorry. Where was I? All right. I don't know where I was. Anybody remember? All right. Here we go. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants, thanks, I was on the 10th plague, I appreciate that. He and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house 
where someone was not dead. We've talked about this before. We, we preached on that. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Interesting. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Remember, a plea pre-plundering. The Lord, when he gets victory, it's an absolute sort of thing. It's an absolute sort of thing to the point where the Israelites pre-plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, Besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord. To bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Before we pray, I want to point something out to you. I would like you to take some time this week before your missional community gathering and look at some of the things surrounding some of these numbers. Like 430 years. So there are different times, there are different times that are given for the actual captivity. I want you to come up with some answers for the 430 years. I want you to come up with some answers for 600,000 men. How did the Lord move 2 million people? That's a good question. I want you to think about that. I want you to discuss that in your uh, missional community gatherings this week. I will tell you, uh, in the 80s, I think the growth rate topped out at 2.2%. And over 400 and something years, if the Israelites grew at 2.2% or around there, uh, they would, it would be around this number. That number is very plausible. Uh, so look at those things. Look at the 430 years. I don't want to spend time on it today other than to tell you it's important because you need to know how to defend it if someone wants to uh, sort of, if they want you to give an apologetic on it. Okay? I do want to pray before we uh, go into the sermon, though. God, we love you. Lord, you're good. Uh, You are powerful. You are mighty. Lord, you are uh, worthy of our complete and utter obedience and faith. You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our submission. Uh, And Lord, help us by faith to submit to you as the one true God, the mighty, the powerful, the one who in Exodus showed dominion over all other gods, but Lord has done it from creation and will do it until the end of time. Lord, we praise you for how good you are. We praise you that even though you are a great God who is worthy to be feared, that you still stepped down as the gentle, spotless lamb. You died on a cross for us. You paid the penalty for our sins, and you purchased us a place in heaven. Lord, may we never forget that 
That is grace upon grace that is poured down upon us. From a God worthy to be feared, but a God that removes all fear through the cross. Lord, thank you. Thank you. That's all we can say. Because we know it's not about us. We know that we are weak. We are unable. Lord, we know that you're not a respecter of persons. Salvation doesn't is not, is not a white, Christianity is not a white man's Christianity. It's not a black man's Christianity. It is a called person's Christianity. Those who are called out by the Spirit of God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that it is not dependent upon our works of righteousness, but the work that you have done. We pray and ask these things. We pray that you would bless this sermon in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Passover is often called the night of watching. It's, because, it's called the night of watching because it was a night um, that, they, that they memorialized the watching and the protection of the Lord. But they also memorialized the fact that they were to watch and wait on the Lord. The Lord was watching and on guard as His people were in slavery. He was watching as the step-by-step process of freedom was being executed. He can always see His people. He is ever present. This is also a night of watching because it was the night that the Israelite mothers and fathers anxiously awaited the last plague of the Lord against the gods of Egypt. They knew what was going to happen. They knew that the plague was coming. It was on that night that they would not sleep much because they had been forewarned to stay awake, to watch, to be ready, to see what the Lord was going to do, to watch and pray. There's a Jewish tradition that followed this in the Passover meals. There are rules and and customs about staying awake and watching during the Passover Seder. If a person falls asleep but can be woken up easily by someone during the Passover meal, then the meal could proceed. But if a person falls asleep and they could not be aroused, they could not be woken up by someone just by a voice, then the Passover meal at that point would come to an end. And then a really cool correlation here is made with Jesus and his disciples in the garden that I never got until this point. Jesus took his disciples to pray in the garden and he told them what? He told them watch and pray. Watch and pray. Much like the command given to the Israelites of the Exodus, he left them and he came back and what happened? They were sleeping. But the first time he comes back, they were sleeping, he wakes them up. They wake up. Do you know why? Because the Lord is sovereign and his hour had not yet come. Jesus goes back and prays. Can you not wait for one hour? Can you not watch for one hour, he says? Can you not pray for one hour? He goes back again. He prays. He comes back to them a second time. He's able to wake them again, extending the Passover again because his hour had not yet come. Each time Jesus wakes them, extending the Passover. And then the third time he comes back, and it appears that they're in a deeper sleep. Because what happens is, at that point, Jesus says, the hour has come. And what happens? Judas comes into the garden with the soldiers. He arrests Jesus, and Jesus goes to the cross. The Passover meal had ended because they had fallen asleep. The Passover meal had ended because they did not watch and pray. The Passover teaches us so many lessons about faithfulness 
and about following the Lord. And one of those lessons is that Christians are to have a spirit of readiness and a watchful eye. Christians are to have a spiritual readiness and a watchful eye. Specifically today, I want to sort of discuss the importance of watching and waiting and praying for the Lord in the Christian life. So my question to you today as we enter into this time is, why is watching so important in the Scriptures and therefore important for God's children? I think watching is important because of the spiritual connotations, and I would like to point out some of those today. First, you need to hear this. Watching preserves our lives and enriches our spirit. Watching preserves our lives and enriches our spirit. One of the most important aspects of any Christian's aspect of any Christian's life is to be ready, to be observant, and to respond appropriately. And the Bible gives us certain commands like this. 2 Peter 3:15 says, "Always be on guard, ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you." On guard. You know what on guard is, right? On guard is either sword in hand and ready, or in uh, jousting, what is that called? Fencing or sword fighting. On guard is here. It's ready to fight. That's probably not the exact form, but you get the point. Other places, the Bible calls being ready and watching sober-mindedness. Being sober-minded. The, the Gospel of Matthew instructs us to be alert for the coming of the Lord. Be alert. Be ready. Stay awake. Watch. Pray. Habakkuk 2, 1 says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. The elders of the church are called watchers or keepers of the souls of the church, the body of Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs that he who watches his way guards his Life And our passage today stays with that theme. It is no exception from that theme. The Israelites were watching and waiting for the Lord's salvation. And they were watching and waiting for the Lord's instructions. And it's pretty clear that watching and waiting is an important Christian idea. But how does watching and waiting preserve and enrich our lives? You may ask. The first little sub-point, little sub-idea how watching and waiting preserves and enriches our lives. When we watch and wait, we are preserved and enriched because we see the commands of God. We are able to see the commands of God. I'm a person who loves objectivity. I'm a person who sees things as black and white. Now that gets me in trouble at times because sometimes it causes me to be a person of low empathy. But I'm a person that likes to see things as black and white. It is this or it's that. And it's nothing else. I love when someone gives me step-by-step instructions that I can follow to a T. And I hate when the instructions let me down. Bro, if I'm putting a piece of furniture together and it's some cheap piece of furniture and there is one step left out or there's not a piece where there's supposed to be a piece, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. It throws me off because I'm trusting in the instructions that have been put before me. I like assembling things because I know that if I'm watchful of the instructions, if I obey what they, what they say, then I can expect a positive or a desired result. This is what we have with the Lord. The Israelites saw it clearly 
through Moses. God was objectively speaking through Moses and the prophets to them. He told them exactly what he was going to do and what they needed to do. He says, I'm going to judge Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. This is what you need to do, which we've already discussed in depth. You know, so we won't really discuss that too much. But follow my instructions, the Lord says, and you will be good. We also have this today. Friends, we have, and you better at least in your heart say amen to this, we have the objective and absolute truth signed, sealed, and delivered directly or indirectly through the Scriptures of God. We can learn everything that we need to know directly. The Bible says it specifically or indirectly. The Bible talks about it through the Word of God that has been signed, sealed, and delivered. It's His absolute and final revelation. We have objective truth. One of the reasons we need to watch, we need to be ready, we need to be observed, we need to observe is because when we do, we can see truth. We can find, we can discover (coughs) truth. We can see what we're supposed to do, whether directly or indirectly. We can lay our hands on the instructions of God. We can lay our hands on this great book. This is why most postmodern thought or subjectivity when it comes to the Bible is one of the greatest enemies of God and the church. It's one of the greatest enemies that the tool that, that the enemy it's one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses. Excuse me. Placing seed of doubt in the Bible, though, is not enough. What has happened in postmodern thought, what has happened in, in, in this new way of thinking, is the enemy doesn't just erode the objectivity and the absolute nature of the Bible, but erodes objectivity and absolute nature of everything. To where it's not just that you can't know that the Bible is true, it's that you can't know that anything is true. Subjectivity is the enemy of God. It's an important tactic because if you can't start with this is the instruction book of God, then you can't do anything. It also does something very important. It makes, it, uh, as far as the tactic of the enemy, it makes believers docile. It makes believers less likely to stand for truth out of the likeliness that they will be embarrassed for standing for absolute truth of the Scripture. Oh, you believe in a literal creation? You believe that it's seven days? Boy, you must, be, you must reject science altogether. You believe in a, a whole earth flood? Boy, you must, must you know, reject science altogether. So what it does is not only erodes the absolute nature of truth, but it also makes Christians docile, unwilling to stand up for truth. Friends, I want to tell you, it does much more than that. We have a racism problem, not because people are more inherently evil than they have ever been, but we have a racism problem because pastors have not stood up and spoken against it in the church as an absolute imperative problem because they have become docile to the truth. We listen, you're, and you're not, uh, some of you, you know, Drew said amen on this. You might not say amen on this one, uh, Drew, or anybody else, but we have a problem with the erosion of family because pastors are so upset with upsetting women that they don't preach biblical truth about the roles of family in the church. Therefore, men were not taught how to treat women gently and properly, so sexual abuse and subjugation have plagued the church. And women were not taught biblical submission, so now women are taking roles that are forbidden according to the Scriptures. 
The Bible may not give us instructions on how to win friends and influence people, but it does give us instructions on how to please a holy God. And we are preserved and enriched because the Bible gives us these objective instructions. And we can see them and we can look at them and we can make them a part of our lives. We can see them. Which leads to the next idea. When we watch and wait, we are preserved and enriched because we can do what God commands. Not only can we see the commands of God, but we can do the commands of God. So many people have called themselves Christians, have been um, Christians by name only, and they don't watch and wait for the commands of God. They don't search for the commands of God, and so they do Christian things instead of what God commands. They do what the world says or what the Christian church says is Christian as opposed to what God commands. The Israelites were given the plan of God It was laid out for them step by step. And so the only logical conclusion was for them to obey. So that's what they did. They put the blood of the spotless lamb on their doorpost. They cooked the meal just like the Lord said. They dressed as he said. They asked for gold and silver and clothing like he said. And guess what? They left Egypt just like he said. They knew the plan and because of that they followed the plan. That's the second step in enrichment. That's the second step in growth. If we know specifically what we ought to do according to the commands and plans of God, then the next practice of uh, persevering or preserving our lives and enriching our lives is obedience to that command. If we know what to do, we can follow those commands. I've had many bosses in my life. I've had church members, and I've had clients who are kings at making moving targets. And for an objective person, this is, this is not a good thing. For a person who sees it as a black and white, a person who says, you told me to do it this way, I did it exactly this way, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> either you changed your mind or you didn't really know how you wanted it done in the first place. Now, I'm not always innocent in this, but at times, I'd be patiently waiting or proactively uh, watching to see what was needed, then do what was needed, and then disappoint the person that told me exactly what I had just to do, exactly what I had just done. One of the ways I've seen this communication specifically is um, uh, this communication as far as like how important it is to see the objective plan of God and then act on it is with Ellie in softball. I think I've probably used this illustration before, but in softball, um, I was trying to teach Ellie how to play at the very beginning, like last year, and I was teaching her how to play baseball. And I didn't know that. And so one day I'm out there playing and Anna's out in the front yard and Anna is telling these terms. She's saying all these things and I'm like, what is this? What is this newfangled? Because softball really is different than baseball. And, and Anna was using terms that I had not used with Ellie. And so what I decided to do was I saw that it was working and I saw that it was some objective thing that Ellie could hold on to. And so I decided to take those terms and not use a single term that I had learned before and use only the terms that Anna, who had taken lessons, who had played competitive softball, was using with Ellie. And so right now you could go to Ellie and you could say, um, what makes a good hitter? And she would say, she's smiling right now. She probably wouldn't say it right now, but I would say, what makes a good hitter? And she would say, the little things. And then I would say, what are the little things? And she would say, the three points of contact, eyes, bat, and ball. She would say, door knock and knuckles. You swing with your hands like that. 
she would say, bat ready, good stance. And she'd say, squish the bug. All of these things, squishing the bug, all of these things make a good hitter. This is not uncommon, though, because we do this on Wednesday nights. If I said, who made you, what would you say? God made me. me. What else did God make? God made all things. We can go on and on and on. But what we know is that when we have an objective truth, when we have it absolute, and whoever is giving us that truth is on the same page, and it's written well, and we know that we can trust it, then the, thank you, the only next logical step would be to obey it. Ellie has gotten much better at softball for her first year to play softball only because she is obeying and doing the steps that were taught to her. She was taught objective steps on how to be good, how to do right. And she obeyed those. Now again, you have to hear me in the context of what I always preach to you. You can't just obey the commands of God and be good. Remember that. I'm not saying that. You have to surrender to Him. You have to trust in Him. The Holy Spirit has to come and regenerate your life. All of those things are important. So don't, don't you know, you know what I mean. So when we know exactly what's required, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do those things. So it's the same way with the Lord. Because we know what He commands, we can obey Him. We saw a glimpse of knowing the, what the Lord commanded and doing it, in, or not doing it, in the story of Cain and Abel. Both Cain and Abel brought the first fruits. They brought the the first fruits of their offering. One was accepted and one was rejected. Why was Cain's Abel? Why was Cain's Abel? Why was Cain's offering rejected? Struggling with words today. I'm a little under the weather today, sorry. Why was Cain's offering rejected? Because it was not what the Lord required. It was not what the Lord had asked for. We study the objective truth of God. We learn it. We learn it. We know it. And then we obey it. That's just a logical conclusion. There's one more thing. And this is so important for me. And I hope it is for you. When we watch and wait, we are preserved and enriched because obedience offers peace. Obedience offers peace. There are times that I will go up to Bennett and I will say, Bennett, I'm about to spank you, and he hasn't done anything wrong. Now, this is not a good practice if you're for future parents. I don't, I don't suggest you do it. I'm just a bad father at many times, and, and it sends a lot of mixed signals, honestly. But I'm just trying to joke with him. I'm going to say, I'll go up to him, and I'll say, Bennett, I'm going to spank you. And he looks at me and says, you're just kidding, Daddy. You're just kidding, Daddy. Or, I, or I'll go up to him and say, Bennett, what did you do? You're just kidding, Daddy, right? I'll do that, right? You're just kidding, Daddy. You know why? Because when Bennett is innocent, there is a peace in his heart. There is a peace in his heart. Other times, I will not know what Bennett did. I will go up to him and I'll go, and he'll go, Ellie told me to. Or I'll go up to him and I'll say, what did you do? Daddy, I was trying to do this and I was trying to do this. I don't even know what's going on. But because even if it wasn't visible, even if the, the, the transgression wasn't visible, even if the transgression wasn't known, there is not peace in your heart if you don't obey and you don't uh, follow the commands that you're supposed to obey. But when you obey what you know what to do is right, then there is peace in your heart. 
Just like Bennett, friends, when you obey the Lord, you don't have to fear Him in the sense that you're worried about. You fear Him in the sense that you're in awe of Him. You don't have to fear Him in the sense that you're worried about condemnation and judgment. We know the Lord's plan and we obey the Lord's plan and then the result is the peace of God. Friends, you need to know this. You can search for peace. You can search your whole life and only find turmoil because people will search for peace without obeying, without following, without trusting the God of peace. You will continue in turmoil. You will continue moving in a life, a lifelong search for peace unless you're willing to hear, see, obey, and then find peace that way. There are people, I mean, is that not what you want? I might be wrong on this. That's what I want in my life. I just want peace. I don't care about money. I don't, I honestly, like we're, you know, we're looking at another house right now. I don't care about that. I care about it, but I don't care about it over peace. I'm looking at that house because I think it'll bring my family some peace. I won't have to work nearly as much outside of Vintage Church. I want peace in my, isn't that what we all want? But you don't find peace in houses. You don't find peace in a lot of work or a little work. You don't find peace in, you don't find peace in marriage. You don't find peace in children. You find peace when you see the objective way that God wants you to go. You follow that, and then the result is that you don't have to worry so much or at all about anything else because you know that you are pleasing the God of peace. You think the Israelites were biting their fingers? You think they were worried that night? You think they were worried that all of a sudden they were, figu- they were fretting that God wasn't going to do what he was going to do? Or do you think the blood on the doorpost and the lintel was a constant reminder to them that the Lord was faithful and the Lord was good to do what he said he was going to do? And therefore they sat in the house at night with their belt strapped, their shoes strapped. They sat in the house at night with their staff in their hand. The kids may have been playing over in the corner or one had might have fallen asleep in the mom or dad's lap. But they sat in their house because the blood was on the doorpost and the lintel. And they sat in their house in peace that night. They did not fear the wrath of God because they saw the commands of God, they obeyed the commands of God, and the natural and every time without fail result was peace. That night all the firstborn children in the land of Israel played freely. They slept peacefully because they knew that the Lord was not going to bring wrath into their house because of the blood of the Lamb. The Lord was going to bring peace. We are His children, and He fiercely protects His children. It was, not, it was a night of watching, verse 42 said, by the Lord, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, thus fulfilling His promise to them. It was not just a peace of mind for doing right, but a peace of mind because the God of gods is protecting and watching over them. I told you this before. I have peace in my life because I know what it takes to be a Christian. I know what the Bible says is required of Christians. And I've surrendered and I've trusted in Jesus for that. And I've trusted in the Holy Spirit of God to make me more like him on a daily basis. I have peace in my heart because of that. Now I fear that 
I sin at times, and I fear that I am drawn away at times, but I don't fear that the wrath of God will ever come into my house because I have the peace of God. I have confidence in the salvation of my children because my wife and I have made it our first, our first and our highest priority to preach Jesus to them in every way that we can see possible, to sow a thread of Jesus in every aspect of life, in the good and the bad. I also believe that God is covenantal. I believe that God is a God that shows blessing on a house from generation to generation to generation. And the other way too, curse and wrath. I have confidence in Vintage Church because I believe we are, uh, we are being obedient as we can be to the Lord and to His Word. I'm at peace even though we don't grow as quickly as some of the other churches around this area. I want to tell you as, a, as an example, we planted, I planted a church at the same time as this dude in Oxford. And this dude in Oxford planted a church, and his first Sunday he had 500 people. His first Sunday... I don't know where he is now. I hadn't, I hadn't checked on what, what their numbers are because it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me. I have peace, not, and this is not in comparison to him, what I'm saying now. I have peace that we're doing the right thing so that God will preserve what we're doing and he'll grow us at the rate he wants us to grow. And the truth of the matter is, we've messed up in some ways, but for the most part, most people don't like to hear the truth of the word of God. And I will preach until there's two people left who want to hear the objective and absolute truth of God. If you all leave, and these two people are still sitting on the front row, we'll just be at my house, and we'll sit, we'll sit in a, I'll sit in a chair instead of being here. I'm at peace that even though we might not be as attractive as other churches, that by holding to the truth that God will preserve us. Do you have this peace of mind in your own life, or for our church, or for circumstances in your life? I'm telling you, honestly, I've needed it this week. I think I've gotten an ulcer in my, in my stomach just thinking about everything that's going on from Bennett's birthday party to this house I'm flipping right now to the potential of moving, to moving away from my parents, moving away from vintage, you know, I mean, it's not away, but moving further away from vintage people. I think I've gotten an ulcer. I need to hear that the, if we're following the Lord, if we're being obedient, that it, the message that he has is a message of peace. But do you have this peace in your mind? Or are you searching for peace and you can't find it? You can't just get peace by praying for it, friends. You get peace when you see what God says to do and you obey and the God of peace comes to your life and just pours it on you. He pours it on you. Now, there are obviously are times of non-peace and there are times of peace. It doesn't mean when you're not experiencing as much peace that, or, or you're not feeling as much peace that it's not there. I will tell you, sometimes during the worst times in my life, I felt the smallest amount of peace, but it was so huge and important because everything else was so big around me. I want to make one more point really quickly, and, I'll, and we'll, we'll be done. I promise, really quickly. Watching allows us to persevere, to be preserved, and to and to grow and to be more like Christ, to have peace, to obey His commands. Watching allows us to intercede for others, and this is vastly important. Watching allows us to intercede for others. You know what? Something that stuck in my head out of this text is verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, 
and, a ve- and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. A mixed multitude went up with them. Now, you, do you suppose that this mixed multitude, or who do you suppose it is? Or how do you think that they knew what to do and to obey the Lord? Likely this mixed multitude is Egyptians and people surrounding this area who had witnessed what the Lord had done. But would they have automatically just known to put the blood on their doorpost to preserve their children? Would they automatically have known how to eat or how to pack? Would they automatically have known how to obey the Lord? They are not just stragglers, friends. This mixed multitude is not just a group of stragglers, but they are followers of the Lord. They had obeyed Him, or they would have not been in the picture at all if they had not. So how did they know? How did they know? They saw the works of the Lord. It caused a sense of wonder, and it caused them to question where this power came from. And then the people of the Lord had revealed His truth They spread his truth of obedience. They spread his objective truth on how to preserve their life. They told them how to be saved. Friends, when we watch and we wait on the Lord, we see that he is good. We see his truth. We learn his truth. And then we can share it to others. I get so sick to my stomach when I miss opportunities like this because people say, Bryce, you know what? You do, you do great work, and you're so kind, and I feel like I can trust you. And my first thought, I've told you this before a thousand times, my first thought is, well, it's just the way I was raised. That's my first thought. But friends, I want you to know that objectively speaking, these people would have never known how to find rescue. There would have never been a mixed multitude had the people of God not said, this is the truth. This is the objective way. You must put, the doorpo- you must put blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. You must eat. You must kill this spotless lamb. You must cook him this way. You must eat him this way. Leave nothing left over. You must put your sandals on and strap them up. You must put your belt on and, and tie it tight or strap it or however it would have been back there. And you must have your rod in your hand and you must be ready to leave when we leave. <coughs> Friends, when we watch and pray, it gives us the ability to intercede on behalf of others. And there was a mixed multitude of Egyptians. There was a mixed multitude of maybe Amorites. Because the people of God thought it was important enough to tell them the objective truth of God and how to obey the Lord. They told him it was two ways. There were two ways of, of obeying the Lord, and we see it in our text. One was through force, like Pharaoh. I'm sure the Israelites said, you can obey, you can obey through force, or you can o- obey sort of voluntarily. You can obey through submission, like God's people. Pharaoh denied the Lord, and he did not submit to him through ten plagues. Ironically, Pharaoh in Exodus 5 said, Who is the Lord? I I don't know him. And now he says, "Go, Go worship the Lord. Go worship the Lord and pray for me and bless me. It's an ironic turn of events. 
One way that we intercede is by telling people of the goodness that comes in trusting in the Lord. To exhort them to trust the Lord now and receive the benefit of being in His family both now and forever. And that trusting Him results in obeying Him. And then we warn them of the results of not trusting Him. That they will still submit to Him, but they will not receive any of the joys of belonging to Him. That one day they will submit to Him, but this time His foot will be on His neck instead of His arm, on, instead of the Lord's arm on their back. It was a forced submission from Pharaoh. And in a sense, we have a lot of these going around the churches today. A forced submission. Where people want to say to the Lord, Lord what? Bless me. Pray for me. But what was Pharaoh's problem? He wanted that without repentance. He wanted that without forgiveness. He wanted a blessing from the Lord without following the Lord. And that is a stigma and a plague in the church of God today. He wanted a blessing from the Lord and a prayer from the Lord or a prayer from Moses without following the Lord. People like that will eventually submit to God through a forced submission on, this, on the other side of eternity or through obeying and believing, much like the people of God did. We can intercede and tell them about a forced submission, or we can intercede. Listen, this is important. We can intercede and tell them about a submission like God's people submitted. This is the submission uh, now that gets the reward of being a child of God. It's a submission right now. But it comes by trusting in him when he calls. Pharaoh said, you can go, but bless me first. Pharaoh wanted the blessing without the forgiveness. He wanted the blessing without repentance. One way to intercede for people is to tell them about repentance. To speak the objective truth of repentance. And that there is no blessing without forgiveness. That there is no blessing without submission to the Lord. There is no fruitfulness of God that comes without believing and trusting in Him. Friends, there are countless people associated with the church, like I've already said, who want the blessing of God without being a child of God, without being, a, without being submitted to God. And for the most part, the vast majority of local churches are obliged to give it to them. They have made it easy to claim belief in God that even Pharaoh himself, after, say, after saying, give me a blessing, would have been counted amongst the saved in many churches in our country, our county, our country, our state. Listen, no matter how harsh you may seem, and now if you have a tendency to be a harsh person, you, don't, you need to kind of not hear, you need to hear part of what I'm saying, or, or all of what I'm saying at least. If you have a tendency to be harsh, your, your, your way of, uh, preaching good news is probably not going to work. But if you have a tendency just to speak in love and in faithfulness with your words seasoned in salt, your words are still going to come across as harsh. But we must proclaim the truth of repentance and faith and not easy believe-ism. Yes. Friends, are we interceding on behalf of our friends and family? Are we teaching them the, that faith produces fruits of repentance and which is obedience, and then peace is a result? Or are we teaching them some other gospel? Friends, the truth of the matter is, you will never be able to give up enough of the gospel to please the world. 
The goal of the enemy of God is to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to destroy the objective truths of God. You will never give up enough to please someone. So if you're going to claim Christianity, if you're going to say that you're a person who's repented and believed the gospel, who's submitted to him by faith, who is being changed by the Holy Spirit, what you need to know is this. Just stand boldly for what the Lord says. Be kind, be empathetic, be gracious, be humble, but be bold. Because friends, here's the deal. The God of gods is the one who has saved us. And the God of gods is the one who has protected us. And not another God, not another religion, not another movement has stood up to attest against the Lord. When we stand boldly with the words of God, what we're doing is we are proclaiming that Christ is in us. He is our only hope for glory, and he should be in you, and he is your only hope for glory. That's the message we should be preaching day by day to everybody that will listen and to some people that won't. God, we love you. We praise you. We're so grateful that you are the Lord of glory, that you are good, you are faithful, you are true, you are holy. Lord, we pray that you would just uh, teach us from your word so that we can see your word. Teach us from your word so that we can obey your word. Help us to obey so that we can have peace and then help us to intercede for others. God, you are so good. You are holy, you're right, you're true. And Lord, we are nothing without your son, but through your son and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free and we are good and found good because of Jesus and we are uh, able to serve and able to obey you. Lord, we love you, we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.